Welcome to Future of Journalism, a podcast from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. I'm Mira Selva, Deputy Director of the Institute and also Director of the Journalist Fellowship Programme. In this episode, we're looking at how the news media should effectively cover the climate crisis. Is journalism fit for purpose when it comes to reporting on perhaps the defining issue of our time? And what can the news media learn from how it has covered other global multifaceted stories, notably COVID-19? To discuss this and more, I'm joined by Wolfgang Blau. Wolfgang was formerly the President, International and Chief Operating Officer at Condé Nast International, overseeing companies in Asia, Europe and Latin America. Prior to that, he was Executive Director of Digital Strategy at The Guardian, and, f- and he was also Editor-in-Chief at Zeit Online in Germany. As a visiting fellow at the Reuters Institute, Wolfgang has been exploring ways to increase journalism's capacity to cover climate change worldwide. Wolfgang, welcome and thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Hello, Mira. Hello. Can we start with the big picture? You've held senior management roles at some really significant publications. Why did you decide that climate change was a topic you wanted to look at more deeply? Two reasons, really. One is that the topic is so urgent. And, and, and of course, I was asking myself many times, including when flying around the world uh, and, and having a significant carbon footprint myself, what is the most effective thing I can do, not being a scientist, not being an engineer and not being a banker, which seem to be three key professions, but being a media manager and journalist. And then also based on observations I have made in in all these companies you have mentioned, which is that I found it really difficult to recruit qualified climate journalists, which is not the same as a meteorologist or a, a, a scientist, but someone who has a deeper understanding of systemic change, understands policy and has subject matter expertise in topics such as travel journalism or sports or fashion or whatever I, I needed them for. And the other one was that many times, and this is something I noticed already back at, at Zeit Online in Germany, is that there is a mismatch between how many likes and shares climate journalism pieces of content often receive um, and the actual reading intensity and audience engagement on the site. And I dismissed that for the longest time as virtue signaling and didn't pay much attention to it. But I, I was very interested in how else could climate journalism function to engage people more. Those were my starting questions. And then I was really happy to be invited to join the Reuters Institute as a as a research fellow for a while. And tell us about your thinking during your time with us. How have you decided to approach these questions and what what who have you been asking these questions? Right. I had, as always, I think it's best to to talk to practitioners and to have really open conversations along that that method of design thinking to to understand and, and, and to make sure I'm even asking the right questions. So I started these conversations with sometimes climate journalists, sometimes also with managing editors, sometimes also with one of the very few climate journalism researchers, of which there is a surprisingly small number around the world, um, and, and started these conversations sometimes with, how are you doing? And of course, I was reading before calling them you know, what they have been producing the last month to get a better idea. And then ask questions such as, is your newsroom planning to expand their climate coverage anytime soon? Um, Why? Uh, What organizational model are you pursuing? How are you structuring your newsroom? Are you creating specialist desks or are you emphasizing everyone's general climate literacy? What What has your news organization learned from covering COVID as a science story in the end that may apply to covering climate change? What do you know about your audience? 
data, things like that. And over time, I, I made sure I speak to news organizations on all inhabited continents and, of course, had a large network to tap into from my past work. Uh, over time, you have you see patterns emerge from the, the notes I took. And I made sure that um, the journalists I spoke with could rely on the confidentiality of these conversations, which is difficult because I, I, I was clear with them, I'm not having these conversations with you out of academic interest or wanting to make a publication. I'm a manager, I'm an operator. I want to see if there's a white spot on the map where we can support news organizations without replicating something that other very important organizations are already providing you with. So that was the start. And then once I had formulated these assumptions, these patterns, that there could be an issue with, with the metrics by which the success of journalism is being measured, that there could be uh, an issue in the editorial codes of ethics that many journalists said there's not enough clarity how to delineate between what is journalism and what is activism, which I knew was a big issue in the US. It surprised me how much of an issue it was in my conversations in continental Europe. Um, that there could be an issue with training and general climate literacy. Those different items I then formulated into a survey in a Google form and then shared that around the world. And then various organizations such as the World Editors Forum were so kind to distribute that, that survey amongst their members around the world. And I received then about, I think, 80 uh, very detailed replies from a different set of people, uh, editors-in-chief, quite a lot, who took part in that personally, uh, managing editors, producers, climate reporters, and of course, they had very different views on their own respective news organizations. At some public broadcasters, I think up to 15 people took part in some countries, and it was interesting to, to get those vastly different perspectives on how they are doing and what the issues are. But my hands were tied a bit given the confidentiality I had promised um, and so I have to be very careful in how I publish my findings now. It'd be really interesting to know, and let's speak in kind of themes that you've seen emerging. You touched on the issue of climate change reporting in terms of activism and journalism, and the, what is one topic where the boundaries often blurred or perceived to be blurred by the audiences. What else is there about climate change reporting in particular that makes it such a difficult topic to get right, engage with and implement in a newsroom? I think climate change, if we use that word, and that we struggle, is it climate change, is it climate crisis, is it climate emergency, what to call it, only indicates the unique nature of this issue in that we even struggle with naming it. Uh, I think it is unique in how much fear it, it triggers. And it, it is a frightening, top, a frightening topic, let's, let's face it. When before did societies have a need to change that fundamentally in everything they do, in everything they produce in such a short amount of time as the time that we now have left to, to hopefully still minimize global warming to 1.5 degree, which, which many now say that's even not possible anymore. So that is unique about the topic. And then, of course, as you know, huge amounts of money have been spent on disinformation, on spreading false, intentionally false information about climate science, which then kept journalists busy even proving the science, largely vastly peer-reviewed science that should really be sufficiently verified by now for journalists not to feel compelled to create a false balance anymore, whether the actual science is, is correct or not, instead of already having moved on to an area where there should be vehement, passionate debates and controversies, which is 
how to address this crisis. There is never just one solution, but we have barely arrived at that discussion. Uh, and still, especially in the US, are stuck in this in, in, in having to defend climate science itself. So the, a lot of money has been spent on politicizing the issue, and we are seeing the effects of that. But the other topic also, I think, is a nature of human denial, is once you, once you really study the climate crisis and, and look at the severity of the situation, I myself can say that from personal experience, I, I went through a moment of, of substantial fear once I realized how serious the situation is. And so I think it's also a human reflex, a coping mechanism of pushing the issue away and to use for that, to use anything that is at hand, whether it's doubt in science or uh, uh, the argument that this could make our news organizations look like it was an activist organization. It's an interesting issue about despair. This is something that uh, the tobacco industry has used as a tactic in the past to say, either we question the science and we say we don't have enough data yet and you undermine the data that does exist, or you say nothing can be done. You say there's pollution in the air, everything is polluting our lungs, and therefore it's all hopeless, we're all doomed. And it's an interesting role topic for journalism because journalism is about reporting the bad news in many ways. It's reporting what's going wrong and holding politicians and corporations to account involves reporting on what they're not doing right. So how do you strike the balance between doing that element of journalism in this story and not falling into this trap of despair, which ultimately will switch readers off or make them feel that they can't trust anybody? That's exactly right. It is so interesting and so surprising at first sight to see that some of the people who first denied the climate science and that we that we are in a crisis are now the same people who say that nothing can be done anymore. And so we do need to be very careful also as journalists in how we how we present this climate crisis. Uh, there are plenty of studies that show, for instance, that readers, viewers, listeners are much more willing and able to engage with climate journalism if it also contains information about things that can be done at a personal level or at a government level or a corporate level and also things that are already being done because quite a lot is being done if you look at massive policy frameworks that have just launched the, the American Green Deal, the, the, the European Green Deal framework. These are stimulus packages and public investments that dwarf the Marshall Plan. And somehow that hasn't sunk in yet that massive investments are about to be made. So yes, it, it is important. And one topic, of course, I tested in these conversations is, is that I said to, especially the, the climate reporters and editors, I said, what is your view on this idea of solutions journalism or this method of solutions journalism or constructive journalism, a very similar field? And I was surprised how much rejection uh, I ran into, where the, the, the typical answer of, of colleagues I greatly respect, um, they said, well, that's not the job of journalism. Our job is to cover the world as it is. And in that formulation, sometimes it is a rather shitty place. And that was a typical formulation um, as if solutions journalism or constructive journalism or pointing to solutions meant to sugarcoat or to sweeten reality, which, of course, is not what these schools of thought are about. Um, my my approach at this point would be to to be to, of course, study methods and examples of solutions journalism, but never call it that. But absolutely look for solutions, look for perspective. 
when I looked at the 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 data that came back in the survey, um, eighty to ninety percent of respondents said that their audiences they think are very interested in what they can do personally about the climate crisis, what can be done about the climate crisis, or at least about slowing down global warming. And yet when you look at much of the climate journalism output of those large players in the industry with their own respective climate verticals, um, that's not most of what you see. What uh, do you see? It's, it's fairly easy to despair when you read their journalism. And again, it's so complicated. So not, it's not complicated, but it's easy to misunderstand what I'm saying, because I also want to know the truth and the full extent of the latest uh, research or, or a climate study. I don't want anything sugarcoated. But I also think journalism not only has the task or the duty of reporting on the world as it is, but also on how it could be. It has to be secondary, but it needs to be in there on a topic like in, in recent months in particular, we've had a series of extreme weather events across Europe and North America that have made it very clear that climate change crisis is affecting us and not just the Maldives and the Pacific Islanders. And it is a bad news story because houses are being set on fire, you know, villages are being flooded. How do you think the media organisations have done in their reporting? And if you were at the site now, how would you have forever um, covered the flooding in, in Germany? Would, what would you have done differently? I think what we saw this year is that more news organisations began to refer to the climate crisis as, as not the cause, but one cause of several of most of these events. And that also has to do, as you know, with the progress that has been made in what is called attribution science. Absolutely. Many news organizations made unnecessary mistakes by attributing climate change to local floods or droughts without having the evidence. Uh, and journalistically, th that is questionable. But the attribution science that also has been developed um, in Oxford, among, in, amongst other places, under the leadership of Freddie Otto, um, has become so fast now that sometimes within days already, and while that news cycle, so to say, or that topic is still in the media, that that attribution can already be made, that this certain flood uh, has become 60% more likely, for instance, due to, to climate change. So that the material data also has improved for news organizations, as well as the awareness that it is almost ridiculous now to report about the fires in California without ever mentioning the climate crisis as one underlying cause. That has changed. What I would look at very much, given that I, I mostly think about digital media and all media is digital one way or another now, is the importance of the visuals, of the images. And with the heat waves this summer, you could still see children playing in fountains and people eating ice cream and these, these belittling, uh, euphemistic illustrations that that uh, made it hard to understand the severity of the situation. On the other hand, I also think we need to be careful to not, if you look at a typical climate vertical of a large news organization, to not only see pictures of fires and melting ice caps and, and images that already scare you before you even started reading, and, and maybe to also show images that hint at solutions. And where do you think this, these changes in the kind of way 
stories are portrayed is going to come from. If you go back to kind of news, the idea of newsroom management, which is where your expertise lies, do you think this is something that senior editors need to come on board with? Or would you start with the kind of the bottom layer, the training the journalists or reports on the ground, the foreign correspondents? Where does the change start? An interesting theme is the, the age distribution. In, in many times, the climate journalists are the most interested editors also in other verticals such as lifestyle or, or health um, are, are under the age of 35. And yet that the, the newsroom management tends to be older. So that already raises a question and often also leads to frustration is that they feel misunderstood or accused of activism where they say, this is not activism. I'm doing my job as a journalist. This is, this is an issue. Organizationally, I see three typical approaches. If a news organization says we want to intensify our coverage, 80% of my respondents said that within the next 12 months, they plan to expand their climate journalism. When I ask them how they go about, uh, are they either uh, uh, increasing the budget of their existing science desk um, or staff? Are they creating a new climate desk? Or are they taking a third approach of creating some something like a virtual climate resort or a climate hub where interested editors of all verticals then meet once a week, typically under the leadership of the science desk, to discuss topics where they could create uh, inter interdepartmental stories. Um, typically, the climate desk is very popular right now. Um, and then the second one right behind that is to, to increase the science desk. The climate desk has the advantage of making a publicly visible change. It has PR value, which is important, for instance, in signaling to your subscribers that you're really taking the topic seriously. Um, it also allows you to create a new team with, with skills that are not necessarily typical for a science desk, such as deep knowledge of uh, uh, large-scale transformation of companies or societies. What does that take? Uh, deep knowledge of policy, deep knowledge of, of organizational psychology, for instance, as a main uh, uh, obstacle often of organizational change, these things in addition to the science knowledge. The downside, of course, is that it creates um, irritation between that new climate desk and the science desk. But then the science editors say, wait a minute, we have been covering this topic for the last 20 years, barely ever made it into the primetime slots or at the top of the homepage or social media channels. Uh, never got the budget, and now there's this new team. So, so that is difficult to manage. Um, and then the the approach to simply expand the science desk is is risky because it can fortify a silo. And the climate crisis, as you know, of course, is not only a science story. It's just as much a story in economics, in politics, but also in health, in gardening, in real estate, in in culture, literature, film, sports, and so forth. And that for that to function, that all teams start covering the climate aspect of their stories, that science desk needs to be super collaborative and needs to be really well embedded in a newsroom. And that comes back then to the newsroom leadership. The science desk can't manage that alone. I spoke to science editors who said they, of course, had an incredible year, one and a half years now covering the COVID uh, pandemic, but they said it has also been great because never before did they feel that integrated into their newsroom. Never before had they a colleague from the business desk come over and ask them to check a story the business desk was about to publish about the competition between two vaccine manufacturers, where the science desk then tends to find slight errors or full-on errors and can help them. 
So news organizations have learned a lot already from COVID, which makes me hopeful that the third approach, especially for the, that majority of small news organizations that have no science desk to begin with, is that that, that collaborative hub approach can work for them. There's a German climate journalist, uh, Sarah Schumann. She, she proposes the idea of, of having a very senior um, climate managing editor, at least for a while, to establish the workflows, who then with that seniority of being part of the chief editor's team does nothing but taking part in all these planning meetings all day long between different teams to make sure they consider the climate aspect of a story early on instead of a bolt on at the end of the editing process. I think it's a role a business editor would often like to take on as well, and it's rarely allowed to ask people to consider the financials. You have been a business editor, Mira. I have, yes. And I was a very good fashion correspondent because I could look at the business um, side of things. Because I, I often think about what, what, what we really want to achieve is to, you could say, normalize climate journalism. I think you always need the specialists in the room. You always need the scientists, of course. But I would hope to see the climate aspects of a tourism industry story or a sports story with the same ease as the financial aspects. So finance journalism is understood also when it comes to the news value criteria, why a major financial change in a certain industry would be newsworthy to see the same degree of normalization for the climate aspects of a story. And I think there's a lot to learn from how the financial literacy really has improved in the last 20 years. I mean, business journalism 20 years ago was often rather rudimentary in most papers and has become so much better. But with it, the business literacy of other verticals has also gone up. Absolutely. And that's often to do with financial editors and business editors and city editors fighting their corner and ask, fighting to have their correspondence be pushed to the front of the page, front of the paper in those days. Let, let's stick to the issue you raised about COVID-19 reporting, because I think this is really fascinating. You're absolutely right that public, the, the health desks and the science desks took centre stage, but it was also a climate where COVID crisis was the only story in town. And this wasn't in many ways great for journalism, because while there was an initial uptick in people's interest in news, it meant that people then got very bored of this news after a while, and yet there was nothing else really happening to grab their attention. So I'd be really interested to know whether you think this is a model that's sustainable for both for COVID-19 reporting, but also for climate reporting, that when there is a crisis, then absolutely it becomes a hub that everybody um, rotates around, but whether newsrooms can maintain that sense of urgency over several years. That's a really interesting question. And of course, it points also at the very different nature of these two crises in the end with covid the working assumption still is that we will one day be able to look back at this pandemic. It will never go away, but hopefully it will become for the entire human population. It will be, be something we can get vaccinated against and we can manage. With the climate crisis, the working assumption is that really no person alive today will see the end of the impacts from those emissions already made. So even if we should magically be able to stop all greenhouse gas emissions tomorrow, the situation probably for at least a decade would still get worse and global warming would increase before things would start stabilizing from my understanding. And that, that of course gives this topic a very different urgency and also longevity. And I think is one reason why it is so important and I would say urgent 
that we no longer leave it or burden only the climate desk or the science desk, the business and maybe the politics desk with educating the public about the enormity and the opportunity of the situation, but that it's woven into all journalism where that is journalistically plausible, which it is with most stories, really. How hopeful are you that these changes will come about? Newsrooms, having, having, having spent such a large part of my life changing and modernizing newsrooms, I had this aha moment one day where I realized, wait a minute, the pride of newsrooms and news journalists is that they resist outside influences, outside pressures. If you look at those few Hollywood movies where newsrooms play a central role, there's always this moment where someone threatens to buy the news organization or the soldiers of a military junta walk into the newsroom and the newsroom just keeps, keeps publishing, keeps broadcasting. So that's very much baked into how newsrooms see themselves. So it's no surprise that they resist any suggestion for change initially. And that has mostly served news organizations well. And the changes they really have to make when it comes to digitization, increasing digital literacy, of course they have made them sometimes decades too late, but eventually they made them uh, where they still could. This time coming to your question about hope, uh, I think news organizations are already beginning in many countries to make these changes. I see that also from the responses I get to my work and, and the openness that I meet, which has really been wonderful. Um, what hasn't sunk in yet is how little time we have left. And of course, we also need to add uh, how expensive it is to produce good science journalism. I always found it the hardest to recruit science journalists. Um, not only because they're so so expensive and, and need to be so well trained and educated, but also because um, they take a very close look whether there's integrity in that news organization they work for, because they can lose their reputation with every single story, even if it's a rewritten news piece. Um, and that that points at the importance of a resilient news ecosystem and i.e. public broadcasters that can do that. Another piece is that in a similarity between COVID journalism and climate journalism is that you're dealing with vastly different segments of audiences. It's different than covering a football match. You have vastly differing degrees of pre-existing knowledge and you have vastly differing attitudes towards the climate crisis, with, with, which has to do with past disinformation campaigns and with the fear this topic triggers. And there are many people who simply cannot cope with the threat this poses, which we need to have empathy for and not just judge it. And so how, that... Hmm? Yeah, because the, the, there is kind of significant pop, part of the population that avoid all news and climate change news in, in particular. What are your thoughts on how do you reach these people when, when they're not even there in front of you? It's not they're reading something else, they're reading nothing. Yes, so, so the first part is this, it requires segmentation. That is something only digital news organization can do. You can do that with a linear broadcaster or, or, or print. Um, the second piece is you need to know your audience segments. Yale um, has done quite a lot of work with their, what they call the Six Americas. They segmented audiences already, I think, 2009, and then can develop strategies how to reach people who they call the alarmed versus the concerned, the cautious, the disengaged, the doubtful and the dismissive, dismissive of climate science. Um, in, at Monash University in Australia, they have their own segmentation model, which they call, I think, the five Australias. 
So that segmentation work is really important to even understand which one of those can I reach? And how does my, my audience uh, match those? That's the starting point. And then of course, not as a journalist, but maybe as a climate science or climate change educator, um, you, you can't only look at news media as, as an access path to the public. You just as much have to look, for instance, which the United Nations is doing, at, at, at game developers. You know, the, the people you can reach in a game such as Fortnite or, or, or uh, Minecraft, of course. So you, 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 the news media plays a hugely important role, but it's, 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 it's only one actor of many. Soap operas. In, including soap operas and then again sport if you think about the the hesitation of so many people to wear a mask and the effect it has if news media says you really should wear masks or in talk shows you saw people uh, sit there with masks versus a major soccer star wearing a mask as a young man and thus helping to to recalibrate uh, notions of virility and masculinity and that you can be very masculine while wearing a mask. These messages is something that journalism uh, can only do in a very limited fashion. What resources do you think journalists and newsrooms need right now from politicians, from academia, from the public to do this job to kind of transmit the climate change story effectively to the people who need to hear it? Journalism can do its job if it if it if it resonates often i think climate journalism reminds me of producing cricket journalism in a country that only plays soccer where so much pre-existing knowledge is already assumed so much jargon is being used the ipcc is no longer being explained uh, in, in in the united states we speak of 1.5 degrees celsius warming where most people have no idea what that even means because they use fahrenheit it's, it's these basics uh, or we refer to the greenhouse effect without explaining it anymore. I think we, we can assume very, very little. News organizations, of course, need to measure the knowledge of their audience through quizzes, for instance, in a playful manner or through representative surveys. That's the first thing. And the news media can't do this urgently needed public education on its own. Uh, it needs it needs allies. It needs the help of, of major sports leagues, of cultural institutions that all need to help now to to increase public knowledge but i also ran into many many executive uh, uh journalists uh, very senior editors who i didn't test them but in the conversation made it clear that they wouldn't know the difference between the effects of arctic ice melting and antarctic ice melting for instance one mostly fresh water the other salt water with very different effects or sitting on land versus already swimming in the water in terms of the effects on sea level rise or would barely know the difference between uh, methane and carbon dioxide and their effects or what the major sources are. So we, when you look at the, the entrance tests of a, you know, BBC or, or Agence France Presse or others, they often ask you for your general education as a young applicant. And they ask you about the rules of soccer, if that's the national sport. They ask you about how your national election systems work. And it's assumed that you must know that. But somehow it's okay still to not have that basic knowledge on climate change. So that I think is really important. Otherwise, journalism disappears in the ether, uh, not, not understood in the basics. The second piece is um, a larger number than I had assumed of journalists 
struggle with getting access to scientists. And of course, there are organizations such as Sideline that almost help like a matchmaker between journalists and, and scientists. But especially in smaller news organizations, they also don't have the time. I think news organizations should build partnerships with local scientific institutions or universities and, and get to know them over time. A frustration of many scientists that you, Mira, also helped me understand in some of the panels you've moderated and invited me to is the frustration of scientists to be quoted in the wrong ways. Many scientists are really weary uh, of giving interviews because they say science and scientific progress happens in increments, but the journalists are always interested in the breakthrough story. And then they misrepresent my work or present me as if I have done this work alone and don't give credit to all my colleagues. And so they embarrass them or risk the funding for their next projects. Absolutely. Or put, the, or put their findings into a kind of political framework or culture war that they had no intention of being, being in. Exactly. Exactly. Metrics are another important issue for news organizations. Uh, when I ask some journalists that it's really great, I'm now being given funding. I, ha I could hire two additional editors and I say, so what's the main obstacle now? And they say, it's no longer the editor in chief. It's the news desk editor. I, I produced this story, really expensive, important, and the news desk editor wouldn't give it proper placement. Wouldn't put it into one of these top three slots on the website where, where you can still route substantial amounts of traffic to a story wouldn't put it in the major social media account during prime time versus on a Saturday evening. Uh, and so you see, I think you see quite a lot of news organizations that produce surprisingly large amounts of good quality, high quality climate journalism, but somehow it never appears in the prime time slots because the, the metrics are click through session time, scroll depth, um, but as you know, so many news organizations don't have impact metrics because the measurement of impact is so much more expensive. It also possibly requires a more nuanced understanding of who the audiences are and what they want, because I think a lot of times news desk editors can underestimate audiences' appetite for serious, engaged stories and data sets. Exactly, exactly. Uh, trolling, trolls, online harassment of journalists, especially women climate editors has been a prominent topic. And in my conversations, I gained the impression, and of course, I need to be careful to treat my sample set as representative. It's indicative and it, it's enough material for further research, but I don't want to make these broad statements. But what I ran into a lot are managing editors who make no difference between trolling against a art, an article about COVID or an election and trolling against an article about the climate crisis or emerging solutions to it. And that, of course, ignores the, the vast commercial interests in delaying a transition to renewable energies. You have entire nations that are financed by, the, by fossil fuels. And, and so the, the, the commercial interest in discrediting climate journalism is much greater than the commercial interest in uh, discrediting COVID journalism. And, and that requires a different amount of training. And, and I, I spoke to one journalist who told me that she has already reduced her engagement with climate journalism because she said, it's just, I don't have the time. I often I have trolls who sound scientific, who spend weeks on discrediting and dismantling my story and write uh, letters to my editors discrediting my my qualification as a journalist and so i have to go back to my editor over and over or to my audience team or my social media team or of course 
via social listening is also tracking these negative comments to make sure they don't over time that it's always my stories who somehow get taken down. And the enormity of those attacks against journalism, I think, are not fully understood and, and require training also for the audience teams, the social media teams and the, the newsroom management so they can give sufficient backup to their journalists. That's a really important point because we've looked a lot at the online harassment of journalists and it's especially women journalists in many fields. But it's interesting that you say the volume and intensity of climate change reporting attacks is on a different scale to trolling elsewhere, which is already pretty high. Have you noticed this is have you noticed any kind of geographical element to that? Do you do you find did you find that journalists in certain regions were coming under more attack than in others? Not on the trolling, mm -hmm. uh, on the activism argument, which often creates then the foundation for the trolling. Sure. Um, that is much more prevalent in the United States okay. still, um, even more than in Australia, to my surprise. And we, we hear now also from, again, Monash University's uh, work also with TV stations that are part of News Corps, which we often associate with, with climate denial. There were some recent announcements by them to change their stance. But it is surprising how much progress they have made in Australia compared to the US. In the US, I took part also in working groups of various self-help networks, so to say, amongst climate journalists, where I remember one um, weather uh, reporter who told us that he had to sign in on paper that he would not mention the word climate change on air. Good Lord. And those are the kinds of, of stories or anecdotes I, I didn't hear um, in, in continental Europe. Um, as far as the trolling goes, I didn't see differences between uh, uh, Europe, Asia, or the United States. And my sample size in Africa was too small. I only spoke to about four colleagues in Africa, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. And this is kind of one area we really do want to look at more, which is to get both climate change reporting and climate change journalism research out of the global south uh, from Asia and Africa and Latin America in particular. Speaking of literacy, I was so impressed by the by one colleague that you and I spoke with in one of the events you hosted from from Africa, I think, from, mm -hmm. was it Kenya? Yes. Um, who said, I don't even have the issue of climate li literacy and people knowing the difference between Arctic eyes and Antarctic eyes, as Wolfgang says, I have the issue that people can see the effects of climate change every day in, in lost harvests, for instance, and droughts, but think it is a punishment of God and have religious narratives. Absolutely. Even start. Yeah. And they still see um, climate change as an issue that affects polar bears rather than exactly. what's happening outside their window right now. You see that also in framings where, where, we, where we say this is the year where the media has finally acknowledged climate change as a cause of the floods in Europe or the heat waves. Uh, and, 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 and you see prominent politicians say climate change is here and now, which is another way of saying we never looked at what is happening in Africa or Southeast Asia. Absolutely. Where already, uh, I think based on the IPCC data, but I, I need to fact check that later. Uh, but if I remember it correctly, four of the five most severely hit countries currently by the effects of climate change are in Africa. But when do you hear about that? other I mean, than more recently about the, 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 the famine in, in Madagascar. Absolutely. Wolfgang, we've been speaking for well over 30 minutes and we could carry on this conversation. I'm really pleased to say this is a conversation that's just beginning on the defining topic of our time. Thank you so much for your expertise and for your work on this area. And there's a long way to go yet, but we're, we're heading in the right direction, I think. Mira, thank you so much for your support. And of course, um, what we find out and what we learn, we also keep publishing on the website of the Reuters Institute. So 
keep checking the site for updates on what we find out. Absolutely. Our guest today was Wolfgang Blau, visiting fellow at the Reuters Institute and former president, international chief operating officer at Condé Nast. Make sure to follow our podcast channel on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss the next episode. And if you don't want to miss any news from the Institute, subscribe to our weekly newsletter by clicking the link on our Twitter bio or on our homepage. Thank you for listening to The Future of Journalism. I'm Mira Selva. We'll be back soon. Thank you.